Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another edition of Bagoons Barrage, the State of New England podcast with me, your host, as always, Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. The Bagoon. Well, things are all rosy in the state of New England as when we look at the nations of the Boston Bruins, the Boston Celtics, and oh yeah, finally opening day, the Boston Red Sox things. It's all gumdrops and lollipops and unicorns, all sorts of shiny things here in the state of New England. But before we get to the awesomeness of the three teams for New England, first we have to take a look at our topic of the day. And for that, we have to go to both the East and the West Coast. You know, I kind of like that because it brackets the country and that satiates my OCD. But when we go across the country, it is going to be to California, where once again, it is Colin Kaepernick that is making noise. Now, in his defense, it is not necessarily Kaepernick that is the one making noise. It is everybody surrounding him. And the problem is right now is that in the sports world, it is all hot take central. It is all people spewing nonsense out of both ends of their bodies. And people are just kind of forgetting about facts. So people are always looking for conspiracy theories. We're seeing it happen in the realm of politics pretty much every single hour. Somebody comes up with a new conspiracy that is either pro-president, anti-president, or there's something else going on, something nefarious with the Russians. It feels like we are all living in a 1980s B-movie. It's not fun stuff. So in the realm of sports where... I like to go to get away from all of that nonsense. It is happening even more than in the realm of politics. And with Colin Kaepernick, it has been happening nonstop since he had to opt out of his contract and forego $14 million. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it wasn't actually a decision for Colin Kaepernick to opt out of that contract. He actually had to with the way his contract was drawn up. There was no way the San Francisco 49ers were going to give him the money that was in his contract. That's just the state of things when it comes to the NFL and player contracts. Okay, so everybody knows the issue. Colin Kaepernick is a free agent quarterback and... Nobody is signing Colin Kaepernick, despite the fact that for his first several years in the league, he was a pretty good, slightly above average quarterback. But here's the thing. When you live in the realm of hot take central, people, instead of going for the most obvious answer, a philosophy that is summed up by Occam's Razor, which says that if there are two options, the simplest option The one that is more simple than the other one is probably the best solution and is probably the more accurate solution. So when it comes to the world of sports, that has been thrown out the window. People are always looking for the boogeyman and none more so than when we talk about Colin Kaepernick. So Colin Kaepernick, he's the free agent quarterback, a guy that was okay his first couple of seasons. I'll even give you slightly above average. But here is the dirty truth that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It is the fact that Colin Kaepernick, the last couple of years, is not just average. He sucks. He's just not that good. We talked about these exact stats a couple of weeks ago. 
Colin Kaepernick, since 2015, ranks last in the NFL among 35 qualified passers in off-target percentage at 22.6. Okay. His completion percentage ranks number 32 at 59.1. In other words, if he drops back 10 times, four of those times it's not going to where he wants it. All right, maybe you can blame that on the dumpster fire of an organization with the San Francisco 49ers, right? Maybe that is your thing. But that's why you can't just look at straight-up completion percentage and why I like the off-target percentage because that tells you that every four times he drops back, he has no idea where that ball is going. He's just kind of letting it go and hoping for the best because, quite frankly, he's like, yeah, I'm not, I, I really don't know what's going to happen with Lisa Hand, yeah, which is, you know, kind of important when you are a quarterback. That is, I'm going to say, the number one factor for what NFL coaches and NFL general managers look for when they are discussing whether or not this guy is going to be a viable quarterback. Now, notice, I said viable quarterback. I did not say viable starting quarterback. And that is really the crux of the issue when it comes to Kaepernick. One, the guy honestly just isn't that good. But two, it is that he wants to be a starter. Now, I'm, this is going to be a little bit difficult to follow, so I hope you stick with me here. The only way that Colin Kaepernick can be an NFL quarterback going forward is if he is a starter, with the exception of one place that we'll get to in just a couple of moments, okay? The problem with Colin Kaepernick is that he's honestly not good enough to be a starter. So that kind of makes it a little bit difficult if you want to, in fact, be a starter. But he can't be a backup quarterback. The reason for that is fairly simple. When you and your best asset is running, if you are a running quarterback, you cannot be a backup quarterback because the game plan between the starter and the backup is so drastically different that the offensive coordinator is going to have to spend essentially twice the amount of time coming up with yet an entirely new, entirely different game plan. Think about this. If your starting quarterback goes down in the second quarter, maybe just for a little bit, maybe it's just like a hamstring, kind of like a tug, and he's like, ooh, ooh, that came up a little bit tight so that they'll work on him, tear it all, at halftime. And then he comes back for the third quarter. That is, the starting quarterback comes back for the third quarter. If Colin Kaepernick is your backup, you're going to ask him to carry the load in an offense that is predicated on passing for a guy that does not pass. Yet he is a running quarterback. The thing that makes him an actual viable quarterback, not starter, but just overall viable quarterback in the NFL is the fact that he runs. Nobody has run more than Colin Kaepernick, with the exception of Russell Wilson and Cam Newton. But Cam Newton, their offense isn't really the type of offense that Colin Kaepernick can be plugged into and take off without missing a beat. The only place that he can go is the Seattle Seahawks and under Russell Wilson because it's a lot of zone reads for the Seahawks and with the way that Russell Wilson quarterbacks, where it's zone read most of the time, pulls it back, and then when the line invariably, because they have an awful line, but when the line invariably breaks down, they have built-in chaos 
for the wide receivers. Everybody knows what they are supposed to do because that offense is almost predicated on the ability of Russell Wilson to scramble and then throw. Kaepernick is kind of close to that. He might be able to replicate Russell Wilson, but that's why when Wilson goes down, the Seahawks struggle mightily because they're back up. Think about it. You just have to flip it around. Russell Wilson is a scrambling quarterback. If your starter is one way, you need your backup to be that same way. You can't have a starter and a backup that have two entirely different skill sets. It just doesn't work because it's going to really kill anything that the offensive coordinator tries to do the second that he has to replace one quarterback with the other quarterback. So when it comes to Colin Kaepernick, you need to find a good spot for him. And quite frankly, unless he's the starter, there's only one, maybe two spots in the NFL that are good for Colin Kaepernick. And that is without looking at the most simplest answer as people are trying to come up with every single thing as to why Colin Kaepernick hasn't been signed yet. My answer is he's just not that good. has nothing to do with the national anthem protest. It has nothing to do with the fact that he is a vegan, which, by the way, is an affront to man of God. But when it comes to the veganism, when it comes to the national protest, it doesn't matter. Colin Kaepernick is just not that good of a quarterback. And for some reason, people are looking for the boogeyman in their closet, and it is just not there. And in fact, if you handed the ball to Colin Kaepernick and said, hey, here, here's a football, throw and hit the boogeyman, there's a one in four chance that he's not going to be close to hitting that boogeyman. All right, that's a problem. If you are a quarterback, here's a football, hit your target. Colin Kaepernick goes, no, let's see. I don't know, guys, but I think I might be close. And it's funny because when you look at the interception ratio, the touchdown to interception ratio, for Colin Kaepernick, 21 to 9. Sounds pretty good. We talked about the fumbles a couple of weeks back and his running ability over the last two years. It actually brings that touchdown to turnover ratio to 24 to 18. But strictly looking at the touchdown to interception ratio, it is 21 to 9 over the last two years. The problem with that and why the interceptions are so low is because he has no idea where the ball is going when he lets it go. In other words, his passes are so bad and so off the mark that they cannot be, in fact, intercepted. All right? That's a problem. Okay, so that's the one issue. That's on the West Coast, right? That's one of the places where Occam's razor, the simplest and most obvious solution, people take a look at it and go, no, 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 no. Let's make up something. Let's come up with the boogeyman theory. All right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the West Coast. Now, let's reel it in. Let's bring it back over to the East Coast and talk about something that before the weekend blew up in the face of the UConn women's basketball team. It was not a good weekend for the Lady Huskies as on Friday they actually lost for the first time in 111 games. If they were able to win both of the games in the final four would have been 113. I like that. 13 is my favorite number. That's besides the point. Before the UConn women's basketball team even took the court on Friday night for their loss, their first loss in 111 games, Gino Oriyama was asked on Thursday as to why he thinks there has been a drop in women's coaches in basketball in the NCAA. The number of women's coaches across the NCAA spectrum as a whole 
is currently at 40%. But across D1, over the last decade, the number, which in 2007 and 2008, 63% of the coaches were women. Now, though, in D1, a decade later, that number is at 56%. So obviously, a big drop there. So who do you ask when you want to know something about the state of women's basketball? You ask the best women's basketball coach of all time, obviously that being Gino Oriema. I hear you. If you want to say it's Pat Summit, you're wrong. But Gino Oriema is the best women's basketball coach of all time. So he was asked on Thursday, why does he think that there was a drop and has been a drop in the past decade? And his answer was pretty simple. He goes, look, there's a reason why there's not as many opportunities for women. Not as many women want to coach. Now, that answer caught and created a ton of flack. Yet, it's the most simple answer. Why don't women want to coach right now? Why, or I should say, why are there not as many women coaching right now? According to Gino Oriema, remember, the best women's basketball coach of all time, the guy who probably knows everything that is going on, in the entire realm of women's basketball, he says not as many women want to coach. Now, for some reason, this came off as sexist. For some reason, this came off as the worst thing in the world. So the New York Times the next day, they come out with an article asking a lot of the women's basketball coaches, what do they think is the reason? And quite frankly, no one really came up with anything that was remotely close to a good answer. Except for one person, that's Muffet McGraw. Because when Muffet McGraw, the Notre Dame coach, the women's basketball coach at Notre Dame, she said, look, the last time that I had an assistant opening, the split was 7-3. to three. In other words, 70% of the applicants were men. Wouldn't that kind of prove Gina Oriema's point that when you look across the spectrum, if there is an opening and you're trying to figure out why there aren't as many coaches, it's simply because more of the men want to coach. That number is backed up by Muffet McGraw, who's not exactly the biggest fan of Gino Oriema at all. Not a lot of people, in fact, are big fans of Gino Oriema. But the problem here is that there has just been this massive tumult about an answer that is, quite frankly, the simplest answer, the most obvious answer, but nobody wants that any longer. Just like in the Colin Kaepernick situation, just like in politics right now, people want to see the boogeyman. They want the conspiracy theory. For some reason, a simple answer, a logical answer, does not any longer hold any weight. It makes no sense. So people come out of the woodwork saying that Gino Oriema is sexist or he has no idea what he's talking about, despite the fact that he's the best women's basketball coach of all time and that he coaches the U.S. Olympic team. Okay, I am so confused and baffled when somebody says something that appears to me, and maybe I'm wrong because I have a limited male perspective, but I get, I'm baffled how situations like this turn into a firestorm of hot takes. That's a good answer. In my opinion, that's a good answer. Leading the outrage, by the way, was Gino Oriema's daughter, Allie, who is a gender studies adjunct professor at UConn, okay? Her response was to immediately type out a tweet storm. She did calm down a little bit to give a better 
and not necessarily more nuanced, but more professorial response, I should say. But her immediate tweet was, Dad, in all caps, Dad, walk it back. I'm like, all right, fine. But then after a while, she calmed down, and then she wrote this out. My dad has always been an empowering force in my life and, emphasis, in the lives of countless women. To suggest that one poorly formed comment about women in the game is indicative of his entire opinion of women or is indicative of him being dismissive of women as a gender is unfortunate. No, you're the only one that takes it like that. Continuing the quote. That being said, as a cisgendered male, obviously his point of view are limited. He has an entirely female staff, is a champion of female coaches, and was trying to make a point about the myriad of more opportunities available to women now as opposed to when he started out. Phrased badly. That's idiotic. You take a good part. Look, the, the, the top of that quote, my dad has always been an empowering force in my life in the lives of countless women. All right, let's put an ellipse in there. And then you take the back end. He has an entirely female staff, is a champion of female coaches, and was trying to make a point about the myriad more opportunities available to women now as opposed to when he started out. I, how do you have that middle part of the quote? It makes no sense. You go, here's point A, here's point B. Now, let's not at all pay attention to point A and point B. To suggest, he ca she calls it a poorly formed comment about the women in the game. This is the guy that would know more than anybody else. But because, quote unquote, as a cisgendered male, obviously his points of view are limited. That's idiotic. It is straight idiocy and lunacy to come up with something like that. And the reason for that is quite, okay, here's the thing. Many people, when they look at me, would not think that I am a feminist or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm the guy that thinks anybody that gets accused of, make that, not accused, but that gets convicted of sexual harassment, I think it should be sexual assault. I think that anybody that sexually assaults a woman or honestly sexually assaults anybody else should be castrated, whichever way that is. If you do something to another person and harm their body, when it comes to a sexual act, that is worse because not only are you harming the body, you are also mar um, scarring the person's mentality. You are destroying their psyche, and that's one of the worst things that you can do. So I'm the type of person that thinks, no, the laws aren't strict enough, okay? But here's the thing. What Ali Oriema is saying is that because her father is a cisgendered male, his points of view are limited. This is where the intersectionality and the new wave fez, uh, feminism completely go off the rails. Because you want to group everybody into these little pockets and say, okay, he, by the way, cisgendered means straight. But because he is a straight male, I hate that phrase, but because he is a straight male, his points of view are limited. Who he wants to go to bed with, who he is sexually attracted to, has absolutely no bearing on his ability as a women's basketball coach. It does not detract from the fact that he knows what's going on probably more than anybody else in the women's world of basketball or in the world of women's basketball. Okay, But for some reason, people need to pigeonhole others. And they need to say he's a cisgendered male. No, you idiot. He is not a cisgendered male. He is the best women's basketball coach of all time. He could be an orange polka dotted dinosaur. But if he was an orange polka dotted dinosaur that had been the head coach of UConn since 1985 and he had all of this success, 
he would be not an orange polka dotted dinosaur, but he would be the best women's basketball coach of all time. This is so dumb, and it denigrates, and it takes away from the man's success, and it takes away from his point of view because you're deciding that the fact that he likes women as a man limits his viewpoints. Pure lunacy. Pure idiocy. He's a terrific women's basketball coach. That is what he is. He's not a cisgendered male. He's not a straight male, evil straight male. No. Dummies. He's the best women's basketball coach of all time. And because we live in this day and age where instead of looking at him as the best women's basketball coach of all time, when he says something that is really logical, that is the simplest answer that Occam's razor says is more than likely the correct answer, instead of taking that for face value, on face value, we say, no, not a good answer, not good enough. He has some uh, implicit bias, unconscious bias that he does not know about, despite the fact that his favorite player is Diana Taurasi, one of the best you-know-what talkers of all time, and somebody that threw everything that he gave to her, she threw it right back. And what makes his team so good is the fact that they scrimmage against guys because he doesn't see a difference in terms of they should only practice against women. No, he wants them to go against bigger, stronger, and faster. And simply biologically speaking, men tend to be that. You don't see many dunks in the national championship game. All right, it just so happens there's no 7-1 Karnowski. The closest was Brittany Griner, and she was 6-10. Right? You don't see a Karnowski. But yet, for some reason, when it comes to the simplest answers, the most logical answers... And the smartest guy, the guy, if he's not the smartest, at least the most knowledgeable guy in women's basketball, when he comes up with a seemingly precise, logical, and simple answer, people don't want that. People are looking right now. What's the, uh, the, the metaphor I used in the article? I think it was a pretty solid one, which is, okay, Yes, sometimes there is a stranger with a bloody axe waiting in your closet, hoping and waiting for you to fall asleep so that he can come out and dismember you because that's what he does. But 99.9999999999999% of the time, it is just your coat hanging up in the closet. Okay, there's no stranger in your closet with an axe looking to dismember you. There is no boogeyman. And when you go searching for these things, the only time you'll find the boogeyman, because you will, if you search hard enough, you will always find a boogeyman. But the only time you'll find him is when you look in the mirror. All right. So that was actually a much more long-winded rant on our topic of the day than I wanted. So now we can go to stuff that makes me happy. And right now, the sports world in New England makes me so happy. The Boston Bruins they are winning. Anton Hudobin has now won six in a row. After, remember, starting the season with just one win through the first three months of the year, Anton Hudobin has won six in a row, including a 41-save, 3-2 victory over the Chicago Blackhawks. Riley Nash, he had a pair of goals a couple of games back. Everybody is scoring right now for the Boston Bruins. Tuka Rask, he's on his game. And the Bruins, who about a week and a half ago, 
it was really a toss-up if they were going to make the playoffs. There's now a chance for them to end up in the second seed and maybe get home ice for the first round. And the Bruins are definitely the type of team that you do not want to play at all in the playoffs. A top-end goalie in Tuka Rask, who for my money when he's on his game can be the best goalie in the world, if not the best, then easily in the top three. That's when he's on his game, and it seems like Hudobin has given him enough rest as of late that Tuka Rask has turned that corner for getting that awful third period against the Tampa Bay Lightning. So the Bruins, they're getting the job done right now. And it just seems like everybody is on the same page in New England as a sports team. So you have the Bruins doing their thing. The Celtics, they keep on winning. They're a half game up of the Cleveland Cavaliers for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. The two play a huge game on Wednesday night at the TD Bank North Garden. If the Celtics win that game, they will be tied with the Cavaliers for uh, in the season series, I should say, as both sides both sides will have won two games apiece, and the Celtics would be at minimum, if they win that game on Wednesday, a game and a half up on the Cavaliers, and then the tiebreaker is conference record, and the Celtics are far and ahead above the Cleveland Cavaliers with that tiebreaker. So really, if the Celtics win that game on Wednesday, and the Cavaliers, they do have a game in Orlando on Tuesday night, but if the Celtics win that game on Wednesday, for all intents and purposes, the Celtics will be two and a half games up on the Cavaliers with only a handful of games to go. And that number one seed is huge because right now, Toronto is playing out of their mind and they are coming up on the three seed, whereas the Washington Wizards, a team that the Celtics are much better against, they have dropped to the four seats. So if the Celtics, for the first time in a long time, can get out of the first round and win that, the Celtics will end up playing the Washington Wizards if the Celtics hold on to the one seed and the Wizards are in the four spot. That's one of those where the, the Celtics, they just don't really match up well with the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors have a little bit too much size for the Celtics, who don't really have a center, despite the fact that Amir Johnson right now is playing out of his mind. He is, since the All-Star break, really, this has been an elongated run. But since the All-Star break, Amir Johnson is doing everything he wants uh, in the Amir Johnson spectrum, he's not doing everything he wants, but he's playing really well. He's playing with a ton of energy, and it is rubbing off on a decent amount. The Celtics, Isaiah Thomas, is still doing his thing. We saw in the last game against the Knicks that Marcus Smart did a little bit more work inside. His shot is completely broken. Unless it's at the last couple of seconds of the shot clock or the quarter, Marcus Smart cannot hit an outside shot, but if you throw him down in the post, he can hit a, he can hit a fadeaway, step back, turn around, doesn't matter. He's great in the post. You can post him up against guys that are four or five inches taller than him because he's so stocky and he's so strong that he can get to his spot and do what he wants just like he's a seven-foot center. So the Celtics, they're doing their thing. They're in first. The Boston Bruins, they have now the inside track to the playoffs and quite possibly a first round, a chance at a first round home matchup for the Bees. But then, my goodness, folks, baseball is back recording this just about an hour after the Red Sox first game of the season. And Ricky P, Rick Porcello, the reigning 
Cy Young Award winner. Went six and one-thirds innings, allowing three runs. He actually, when he left the game, had only allowed one run, but both of the inherited runners in the seventh inning came around to score. One for one in the quality starts. He's 1-0 at home as the Red Sox only scored in one inning, but they played five in that inning, and it was a 5-3 victory. There were a lot of nerves in that game between the Red Sox and the Pittsburgh Pirates, but the guy that I want to make mention more than anybody else is Pablo Sandoval, a guy that, rightfully so, was derided all of last season because he showed up looking like a Zeppelin, like a hot air balloon, and he didn't play well. Yes, he made an error in yesterday's game, but the first run to come across the plate yesterday that gave the Red Sox a one to nothing lead, Jackie Bradley Jr. tripled with two outs in the fifth inning, and then Pablo Sandoval comes to the plate, and the Panda hits a warm assassin out towards the hole in short, backhand play, jump throw across the diamond, but Sandoval is able to beat it out. Now, if this is Sandoval of 20 pounds ago from last season, maybe he doesn't beat that out. But he got a huge cheer pregame, got a monstrous cheer when he beat out that throw. Yes, it was the first run of the season, so that first cheer is going to be insane nonetheless. But then he moves up to second on a Sandy, uh, Sandy Leon bunt up the third baseline against the shift, and then... Dustin Pedroia whacks a single right back up the middle, and Pablo Sandoval, on a close throw to the plate, beats that one out. So in the very first game, Pablo Sandoval coming into the game in shape probably won it for the Red Sox because he could run. He wasn't weighed down by an extra 20, 25 pounds, and he looked good. His error was just stupid. He short-armed it. That had nothing to do with weight or anything like that. There was a little dribbler out towards him as he was playing in, and his momentum was going exactly where he wanted it to go. But he just short-armed it. Sometimes when a third baseman has a 60-foot throw, it's much harder than the 110-foot throw where they really have to rocket it because they don't want to crow-hop it and peg the first baseman. So Sandoval babied it. And a 60-foot throw became a 45-foot toss, and Moreland couldn't backhand. He looked pretty good at first base, had a couple of pick opportunities, couldn't come up, could not come up with them, I should say. But we'll see going forward. Red Sox end up winning 5-3 because Andrew Benatendi, Benny Baseball, or as Jared Carabas likes to say, Benny Biceps after his outrageous offseason workout. You could see his regimen. He put on a good 10 to 15 pounds of muscle, and it helped as he hit the first home run of the season for the Red Sox, a three-run shot out to right, which is no small poke by any stretch of the imagination. Red Sox had the 5-0 lead after the fifth inning. Uh, they allowed the three runs in the seventh. Porcello was charged with every single one of those runs, but he ended up getting the win as the bullpen finally got the job done. Kimbrell came in, Craig Kimbrell, who obviously was not all that good last season, uh, ERA in the threes. Walks were an issue. The first batter he faces, he allows a double as every single one of his fastballs and sliders, were they were low in the zone. You have a funky delivery in which you throw 98 miles an hour, 96, 97, 98, 99 miles an hour. He can get to triple digits every once in a blue moon. But he throws pure heat, and he's keeping it all low in the zone. It sounds counterintuitive, but when you throw that fast, you want it up in the zone. So the first batter, it's all low. It's all mid-thigh high to the knees. 
and it's all low and foul ball, foul ball, foul ball, foul ball, then double, right? Boom. Leadoff man is on in a 5-3 ball game. Now the tying run is at the dish, but what does Kimbrell do? Comes back, and all of a sudden, he remembers that if I'm going to throw a heater, if I'm going to bring the serious cheese, I should keep it up in the zone. Strike out, strike out, pop out and foul territory, game over, right? That's how you get it done. If you're throwing 100 miles an hour, don't throw at the knees. Bring it up in the zone, make them chase it, and you'll have yourself yourself a good season. And for Kimbrell, one and one. And save opportunities, a whip of only one, one hit, no walks, nothing like that. Struck out a pair. That's exactly what you want from your closer. The start from Porcello, six and a third, three runs. That's exactly what you want from him. And it wasn't just like he tricked the Pirates into a good start. No, 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 no. He had the fastball going. He had the curveball. He had the slider. He had the cutter. The changeup was a little bit wiggly and was actually the pitch that got him in trouble in the seventh inning as he almost hit Francisco Cervelli twice with a changeup, which was kind of funny, and I liked it as the next pitch. Uh, the first two pitches were the changeup up high and tight. Then the next pitch was dotted on the outside corner, which as a former catcher makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. He then came back with an inside fastball called a ball, and then Cervelli teed off on a 3-1 for the double um, to drive in a run. But it was a good day overall for the Red Sox as they are 1-0 at the top of the AL East along with the Baltimore Orioles and the Tampa Bay Rays. So that's good there. The Bruins, they are winning. Their backup Anton Hudobin has now won six in a row. Tuka Rask has completely disregarded that awful third period against the Tampa Bay Lightning where the Bruins lost 6-3. And the Boston Celtics, they have a big old dinner date on Wednesday with the Cleveland Cavaliers. But for the moment, as always, it is a good day in New England. And that will do it for us here at Bagoons Barrage, the State of New England podcast with me, your host, as always, Jake Donnelly. If there's one thought, folks, that I can leave you with, if there is a problem and there is an easy solution and a difficult solution where you have to make assumption after assumption after assumption, more than likely, it's that other guy. It's the simple answer that is the correct answer. So instead of trying to make everything just so difficult, try to make things simpler. You'll enjoy life a lot more. Now I step off of my soapbox to sign off here. This is Jake Donnelly, a.k.a. Bagoon, saying once again, thank you for tuning in to Bagoon's Barrage, the State of New England podcast. And as always, go New England. Do not touch my fingerprint unstained.